So I thought we'd start this morning Psalm 15. <laughs> Karen takes Psalm 15 this morning. Psalm 15. Whoever gets there first, read it out for us. Lord, who may abide in thy tent? Who may dwell on thy holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness, and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil with his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes the reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money to interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Amen. This is a psalm of David. What What is this psalm about? Integrity. Integrity? What did I hear over here? A man who abides in God. He abides in God. Yep. So it has to do with uh, what it looks like to, to walk with God. It it's, uh, has to do with what it looks like to be a, a citizen of the kingdom of God, which is what we're invited to challenged uh, to do. We're invited to become a, a citizen through Christ as our king and then challenged in that to walk with him, to abide in him. So what's John about? We've been studying John. What, what is the gospel of John about? I didn't put up the cheat sheet. Yeah. <laughs> Although Daniel wrote on the board back here. No, <laughs> So, so what's John about? What's the main thesis of John? I'm hearing some murmuring. It's it's to yes to know, believe, and abide or remain in Him. And so, where do we find that in John? Twenty thirty one. John twenty thirty one. Again, the cheat sheet is up there. So, uh, as I said, I read this every week. It says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So, three things He wants us to understand: who Christ is. And that, that doesn't just mean head knowledge, but it actually needs to impact us in a way that changes our life. And, and that's the essence of belief. It becomes foundational. So the way that we um, act and think and, and live in the world is a result of what we value and what we believe. So it's more than just head knowledge. It actually affects the way that we live through belief. And that... There's a, a challenge there uh, to remain in him. And you see that word uh, throughout. And that's to have life in his name. Right? So we understand that it's, it's, uh, it's more than um, unending days, but rather it's a quality of life that's being talked about. Believing you may have life 
real life in his name. So we're in John chapter 12, and uh, I think we got through verse 19 last week. Does that sound right? So what, what has John been about as we've been, how is it organized, and where are we at in our study of John? How is John organized? What, how has he been helping us to know who Christ is and challenging us to believe? We're coming to the end of the miracles phase. Right. So there's a, a public ministry of John, which I think I put the organization here next. So we, we saw uh, the theology lesson, the, the prologue, the introduction about knowing who Christ is and understanding. Um, and then there's John is kind of broken up into two major portions of the body. One portion is public ministry of Christ, and the other is a more uh, private ministry and, uh, and the, um, the suffering and glory section. So sometimes it's called the Book of Miracles is the first part, and the Book of Glory is, is the second part. And so right now we're at the very end of the first part, the Book of Miracles. And what are miracles about? The validity is claimed. Right. There's there there. It's like John said. There are many other signs or miracles that Jesus did that could have been written, but these were written specifically so that we would believe, so that um, that we can know and believe. So they're they're there for a purpose. They're there for the purpose of validating that which Christ is revealing to us. So there's a revelation, and then there's a, a support for that. Um, and the way that this is revealed to us is through a challenge of a religious system. So we see a, a theme as we move through John about uh, how Jesus, as John shared with us, how Jesus challenged the understanding of religion of the day. So the, the religion of the Jewish people is what? Yeah, so that's belief in one God, and yeah, we call it Judaism, right? And that, well, I mean, what we have a lot of religious systems in the world. So what's the what's the belief of Islam, for example? Right. So we need to question what are what are those belief systems about, right? What was the belief system about that the, this religious practice was supposed to support? Well, it was supposed to support support knowing the one God, the true God. And that um, there is a, a requirement in knowing that God, right? Because when you know who he is, it places a requirement on your life to, to acknowledge that and submit to that um, or to reject it, put somebody else in his place. So the religious practice of the day was all about trying to uh, come to understand who that one God is and remember, remember, remember. So that's what Judaism is about, right? And and then there was a requirement of how they would live. So holiness is declared. So if you look at the the uh, what they call the Book of the Law, the first five books of the Bible, it's a declaration of uh, who God is and what it, what His righteousness and holiness is all about. And then there's uh, within that is also an appeal to um, be holy as he is holy. 
right? So if you look at Exodus, Exodus says you go through God's power and might are revealed, and then His holiness is revealed through the law, and I would say that that's more declarative rather than prescriptive. So it's descriptive rather than prescriptive about who God is, what His holiness and righteousness looks like. But when you come to know that, it actually changes you. It puts a requirement on you. To, if you're going to abide with God, you need to be holy as He is holy, right? So there's an implicit requirement associated with belief. And we're challenged to believe. And what we've seen is as Jesus has gone through and He's taken apart the, the uh, elements of the Jewish religion and He approached that through institutions. We looked at the whole institution of the wedding and the purification uh, that would occur there the temple, the place where we meet God, the rabbinic teaching, the teaching ministry, and, uh, and then tradition, which is the story of the well in Samaria, and then the specific festivals that were intended to help us understand who God is and how we're challenged in that requirement, the Sabbath. And most people don't think of that as a festival, but in fact, it's the very first that's instituted. And the Passover, and the we went through a whole teaching on Passover. And then we had uh, the Festival of the Tabernacles was challenged. And then finally we saw the Festival of Dedication, Hanukkah. And how in each one of those, Jesus helped refine our understanding of both what that festival or institution was about, but also what it really means to know that He is the Christ, the Son of God. And that in Him is true life. And so we're right now at the close of that, where he's basically finishing up that book of, of miracles that John has captured for us. He's finishing up that public ministry. And that the, the culmination of that is in a challenge to believe. So we saw that starting back in chapter 9, when uh, Jesus healed a man that was born blind, and he revealed who he was <clears throat> to this man born blind. <clears throat> we see in 935 it says, Jesus heard they had put him, the blind man, out of the synagogue. And finding him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? So he's asking him a specific question. Do you believe <clears throat> in the Son of Man? <clears throat> now the blind man's still wrestling with this whole thing that's happened to him. But he does believe. He's even taken a stand before he fully understood everything that was uh, required in that belief. And he says, uh, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. So you see the first uh, just explicit, straight-out challenge, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Revealed. You see the same thing happen in chapter 10, and that he's uh, made a clear declaration of who he is. He's revealed that he and the Father are one. And there's a specific uh, re response in that that, do you believe that? Do you believe that this one who is just like you in flesh and blood is also the Father in your presence? That he is both fully human and fully divine, fully God. And some believed and some didn't. Um, we see as we go through Chapter 11, uh, Jesus says in verse 25, he's talking to Martha, 
And he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So there are specific challenges to believe the revelation that's been given. And it's been an incredible revelation of who God is. I get to chapter 12. Like I say, this is uh, the end, the turning point, from a public ministry to a private uh, ministry to his disciples as he marches to the cross, which is the, the culmination of the glorification. So when we look at uh, chapter 12, we read through um, that this is happening six days before. I'm going to go down here, give you a brief chronology. Six days before um, Christ is actually crucified. So it starts here, it says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, from whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So we know that this is the final week of Jesus' life, and that, um, he, that he is on the, on the, uh, the road, or on the path, that's going to end in his crucifixion. That he's going to be the Passover lamb for us. That through his death, we can actually come to life. That our sins can be forgiven and we can have eternal life. So that's what he's doing. And a few weeks back when, when uh, we went through Luke chapter 9, we saw the beginning of that path. It started at the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus appeared in his glorified state. And I mentioned that it's not that death had any hold on him because he was different than all other men. Even though he is like us in every way, he was without sin. So death had no hold on him. Because the wages of sin is death, but Jesus had not sinned. So death had no hold on him. But he purposed, because this is the purpose of God, to come down from that mountain and go down into the valley um, to give his life for the lives of the citizens of his kingdom. That he was actually on a march. And when you go through that in chapter 9, you get to the end of chapter 9 in Luke, and it says, And Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. I'll read it real quick, because that's actually when this journey to Jerusalem started. It says in uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So this path to uh, the, the cross actually started back there on Mount Hermon. And we read the various accounts of all that Jesus did on his way to the cross, but his purpose was to go to the cross. And now we're at six days before the Passover. And I'm going to give you a, a real quick chronology of when that is. So if we look at John uh, 12, 1, this is... This is uh, verse 1. Jesus arrives in Bethany. So he's coming up. Um, I say he's coming up. Let me just show you the, the map of where we're at here. So he had, uh, prior to this, prior to the healing of Lazarus, he had been down here in the Jordan Valley, um, down right around here, and he had come all the way up to uh, outside of Jerusalem, to where the, the house of Simon the leper, where Lazarus, Martha, and Mary were resident, and that um, 
that was the event that we read about in chapter 11 where Lazarus had died and he was raised from the dead. Well, when Jesus made that ascent from the valley here up to just outside of Jerusalem, um, at that time, they were ready to kill him. So if he stayed there, they would have arrested him and he would have been crucified, but it wasn't his time yet. So he went a little bit further north to Ephraim. And the Ephraim, as I mentioned last week, is near uh, Bethel, the house of God, which we read that. What's the history of Bethel? It's where uh, Jacob was fleeing from his brother, and he came to this place, and he had a vision that the, uh, Jake, we call it Jacob's Ladder, right, where the gates of heaven were opened, and the angels were ascending and descending on the son of men, or on the, uh, this ladder, this stairway. Um, we read about the first of John, that Jesus says he is that ladder, that um, the angels will ascend and descend between heaven and earth uh, upon the Son of Man. We saw that in John chapter 1, verse 51. So this place where Jesus went to right before he, he finishes his final week is very significant. So I, I referenced John 1, 51, and he says to uh, Nathaniel in this case, he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Jesus is making a declaration about who he is in the context of all prophecy and all of the law. So when we read about the law and the prophets, Jesus is like helping us connect the dots. What is that prophecy? What is that law all about? And that's the place that he retreats to prior to his final journey uh, to the cross. And he came to his final week, he comes from this area here in Ephraim down to, uh, back to Bethany. And that's where we're at right now in John chapter 12. So <clears throat> he comes in on Friday, March 27, 33 AD. And uh, the dates are disputed, um, but this is the best chronology I can uh, agree with, which happens to be put together by Harold Honer out of, uh, out of Dallas. And uh, so on Friday, March 27th, he arrives in Bethany. Now, when he arrives, it would have been preparation for the Sabbath, right? So that means that there would have been some activity, getting ready for the meal on the Sabbath day, and then there would have been that day of rest on the Sabbath. What happens is, is uh, on the Sabbath, which starts on Friday at sundown and is until sundown on Saturday, is the time that they would have done very little activity. So Jesus wasn't out and about uh, doing a lot of work in that period of time, so he was honoring the tradition of men. But at sundown, once the sun set, there was a meal. And this meal happened at uh, Simon the leper's house. And that's the meal that we read about uh, and we, we talked about last week. It says in verse 2, it says, So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. And we talked about the, the uh, importance of what that means, that Lazarus was reclining at the table. Um, and then this is where we read the account of uh, Mary taking the very expensive uh, perfume uh, a year's wages to purchase this very costly gift and anointing him in preparation for his burial. So Mary 
actually heard the declarations of Jesus of what his purpose was about was to not go to Jerusalem to be a conquering king in the sense that the people expected a victor to come in, um, but rather to go and win the battle, to win the war, to conquer death. She understood that he was going to die. And so her expression of abiding with him was poured out through this perfume, that she was preparing him for that very moment that was his purpose. And there was an objection to that by, we see in this case it was uh, Judas is called out, uh, because Judas says, well, couldn't we have you know, taken this and, and sold it? It's worth a lot of money. Um, it wasn't just Judas. There were several people that said, wow, what, what are you doing? This is an incredibly costly gift. Why are you doing this? In other words, they didn't, even though they saw the miracles and they believed in their head who Jesus was, they didn't understand that he truly was Messiah, and that Messiah had come to suffer and die for the sins of the world. And that that was the real problem. Not that Jerusalem or the Jews, the Jewish nation, what was remnant of left, what came out of Babylon, was oppressed by Rome, and that they no longer had the boundaries that they had back under Solomon, right, where they were a, a great nation, um, that was not their problem. Their problem was not one of real estate, and it wasn't one of politics or power. It was one that they were going to die. That that is the, the end state of man unless God intervenes. And so um, Mary understood it, but most that were there did not. And that's what you see. You see that kind of captured in the objection of Judas. And you see that as Jesus entered Jerusalem, which then would have happened, so if this meal happened on uh, uh, Saturday night, so it would have been after the Sabbath ended, so once the sun had set, they had this meal. Um, the next morning, Jesus, which would have been Sunday, March 29th, um, leaves Bethany and he heads into Jerusalem. And that's where we read the account that he comes in on uh, a donkey's colt. Well, what was the donkey, what was the significance of the donkey's colt? Anybody remember? It's fulfilling prophecy. Coming in as a king. And their understanding of how a king should enter is in like a victory parade. So what did they do? They cut palm branches, which was a sign of the conquering king coming in, and they laid those down. And they shouted, Hosanna, save us now. Right? Because their understanding of salvation was that they were an oppressed people. Well, they were oppressed, but they were oppressed by something that they didn't fully appreciate. They were oppressed by the the weight of death, which was the consequence of sin, the wages of sin. And so um, they're, they're expecting that Jesus is going to come in and liberate them. And what Jesus is coming to do is coming in to set them free. That you can have freedom without liberty. In other words, you can be under an oppressive government and still be truly free. Because you have a greater king. You have a different kingdom. And so that's what Jesus was coming for, 
Well, they misunderstood and they cut down these palm branches and they, we call that Palm Sunday, right? They actually put down uh, these palm branches for the conquering king. Just kind of an aside, Dave, but this year, Palm Sunday is on March 29th. Yes, it is interesting that this year, and, and I was aware of that because what that means is that the crucifixion day was April 3rd. Um, the way that we date it, and I always pay attention to that too, just because. And I believe this is a good chronology. It lines right up this year. It does, and uh, and I believe this is a good chronology. And if anybody's interested in the different chronologies and how you date things in the first century, and how you uh, look at how old was Jesus when he died, and what was the extent of his ministry, and all of that, um, I would encourage you to read Harold Honer's book. It's called. Uh, uh, well, I should have brought it with me. Now I can't remember the title, but uh, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, I think that's what it's called. Um, in any case, it goes through this, this scenario, but from a more academic uh, perspective, to show how all of these dates, this is what actually happened. But he comes in on Sunday, March 29th, and they're laying down these palm branches, and the significance of the palm branch and victory, victory as is, is in a conquering king, the warrior king, um, is actually... Uh, and, and it's captured in their coins. So in the time of like the Maccabean revolt and the, the later revolt that happened in uh, around 70 AD, when uh, between 66 and 70 AD, when the Jewish nation was entrenched and they were going to rebel against Rome, and Rome came in and finally destroyed Jerusalem, the, they minted their own coins, and in the back of those coins was palm branch because that was showing their rebellious... Uh, throwing off the yoke of Rome and declaring their victory through, and this is, this is how they did it. So that's what this people group were looking at. They were looking at, this is um, the conquering king, the warrior king, which we do find that Jesus is the warrior king. Did you read about that in Revelation 19? Where it says, um, and I'll, I'll take you to Revelation 19, because this is a, a significant passage because it has to do with uh, faithful and true, as opposed to a faithless and perverse nation. So we read in uh, chapter 19 of Revelation, verse 11, it says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, mm -hmm. and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Mm -hmm. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Wow. You see all this imagery popping off the page here? So we talked about the gates of heaven being opened. Well, we read about in John chapter 1, verse 51, where Jesus says that the, the angels are going to ascend and descend on the Son of Man. That word there in, in 151 is opened means that it's uh, the gates are open and they stay open. It's, uh, it's an event in time which has a continuing result. And so when Christ comes, he actually opens the gates and the gates remain open. In other words, he makes a bridge between heaven and earth uh, which we can cross that bridge through him, through the Son of Man, to actually go from death unto life. And here we read the, the final, the king coming, 
basically to put down the rebellion. Right? And this is the Almighty God. Right? And if we read a little bit further, it says, And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is the, the victorious warrior king. And that's what they expected when he came. But he had to conquer the enemy first. So I would suggest that in Revelation 19, although the armies of the earth that are in rebellion against God see it as the final defeat, the final defeat actually happened at the cross. The glorification of God is revealed on the, on the cross. Not when the battle in Revelation 19 happens. That's the second coming. The first coming is when Christ wins, wins it all. When he conquers death. And so, in a sense, they were correct to put down those palm branches. But they misunderstood. They saw him as a warrior king. They didn't see him as a suffering servant. The one who leads by laying down his life. He did for us what we could not do. But they come and they, they still have this great misunderstanding uh, about who Christ is. But the reason I call this the turning point is because, um, well, and I won't go through the chronology because we're going to get to that in chapter 13. I just wanted to take you to this point that we're now through Sunday, Palm Sunday, and it says now in verse 20, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Why would Jesus say that? He's been saying, My hour has not yet come, My hour has not yet come, My hour has not yet come, although He's had His... his Focus from the time where he met um, and was revealed in glory, and he's talking about um, the sum of the law and the prophets being fulfilled in the sacrifice of the one who had to make no sacrifice, the one on whom death had no hold, lays down his life. From that moment all the way to now, he's been saying, My hour has not yet come, but it's coming. He knows it's coming and he set his eye on it. Why does he all of a sudden say, my hour has come? Why do you suppose? Because he's now going to the cross. It's he, is, he is now going to the cross. But he's been on a, on a march to the cross up to this point. Why does he make this declaration, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified? The Passover. The Passover is coming. In the context right here, though, it's, it's in response to these Greeks, these Gentiles, these non-Jews. Yes. Uh, he goes back to John 1, and says he came unto his own. Yes. His own did not receive him, and you just talked about that rejection. Exactly. But as many as received him, to them gave us he the power to become children of God. Exactly. That's why you see that theology lesson up front in the prologue. He's telling us exactly when that hour has come. His own had rejected him. They did not understand who he was. Some of them were uh, thinking they were believing, but didn't get it. And they were just kind of following along. We're going to see that they quickly fall off when he goes to the cross. And some of them flat out rejected him. 
and wanted to kill him. They would have killed him on the spot if they could have got away with it. So he came to his own, and his own rejected him. And now we see that these are not his own. These are, these are folks that are of non-Jewish, um, non-Hebrew origin. Right? And they come to Philip, because Philip is from the northern part in Galilee, and that uh, he's a fisherman. It's interesting that they come to Philip, because when you read the account where Jesus' ministry starts, Philip is there, and he goes and tells Nathaniel um, about Jesus. And Andrew was one of those that uh, went and, and told uh, Peter about Jesus. Right? So you see kind of the, the full circle coming, coming close. First, those that, that recognized that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. And I'll take you back to chapter 1 of John. It says, uh, I'm going to start with Andrew. So if you read... Um, uh, well, it's going to start in 35. It says, and the next day John was standing with two of his disciples. The question is, who were those two? Uh, and he looked at Jesus and he, as he walked and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is translated means teacher, Where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So there are two folks there, one of which was Andrew, and I'll suggest the other was John. Um, and it says, he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found Messiah, which translated means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, Simon, Son of John, you should be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So, he'd come to his own. Some actually recognized, at least, uh, what their understanding of Messiah was, that this was Messiah. And they went to their own and told him. Well, we understand that if you read in verse 43, the next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida the city of Andrew and Peter. So this is that fishing village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So he, he's already making the linkage between the law and the prophets about who this man Jesus is. Now, did he fully understand how Jesus was fully man, fully God? Probably not. Um, did he have a belief that um, Jesus had to come and die and that that's what the purpose of God was in this man's life? Probably not. But nonetheless, he saw and understood from what had been revealed that this was the Christ. And he goes and he, he tells Nathaniel. Well, he came to his own, but his own rejected him. So I would say that what those disciples did is they went to their own. We read about how they first went out in, as the twelve, and they went out to the villages all around Galilee, and they um, were telling people the message of Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they went in his authority at healing, 
and they actually um, gave the same signs that Jesus gave that uh, he, there was something uh, above nature going on that Jesus supernaturally healed. In other words, God was injecting himself into history. He was appearing uh, with men. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Christ has come. The king has come. Right? And so they went out. Well, then you read about the 72 going out. So the, they went out to their own. And they gave the message of the king is here. Repent, which is the natural response. Come to the king. Turn away from those things that you're holding on to. Deny yourself. And turn to the king. And yet they rejected him. But when those who also heard the message and believed like Nathaniel and believed like Philip, who did they come to? They came to Philip. They said, Philip, can you get us in to see Jesus? We want to talk to him. That's why this message that Jesus brought to the world, it was first to his own, but it went out broader than that. That even though... Um, he had to be rejected before the rest of the world could share in the gift that he was bringing. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's the gift of the world. But it was brought first to the Jews and they rejected him. As soon as that rejection had come, that point of rejection and the gift of the world was ready to go out. That was the hour that he had come for. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So what's that about? He gives, gives, again, he uses figurative language, like in a parable. No, I'm not living for the right now. It's about putting your value on eternal, into eternal value, and to, and to follow Jesus means to go to heaven, because that's where he is seated at the right hand of power. So, it, it, it uh, challenges us in the discipleship realm, kind of what you just described, in that, uh, and, and there, basically what you said had a whole lot chalked into it. Um, I'm going to take one step back and just look at the piece right before that, which is, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What's that about? Yeah, so what does it mean in a plant growing? It has to die in order to produce, but it's intended to become the tree. Right. So the, the purpose um, of that seed, so what happens is, you know how a seed is formed? What's, what is the final stage of a plant? It's a seed-bearing plant. That's right. In its death, it's actually pouring all of its energy into that which is going to bring life. So, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. 
But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So if you try and hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. Because there is no life in the stalk. There is no life in the leaves. I mean, there is, but there isn't. There isn't that eternal life. The way that true life happens is that plant gives its all to the seed. And it falls into the ground and dies. But that seed carries on life. Right? That's the agricultural example. Well, not just carries on life, but it multiplies life. Because of, you know, a single kernel of corn can right. produce hundreds of kernels of corn in a couple of years at the right. same on that stock. Right. So in the same way, Christ's death will bring salvation to many. Right. Exactly. That there is a, a multiplication that happens. And so Christ is, again, trying to help them understand why it is that he needs to die on the cross. <coughs> right? And then he, he then turns that um, to an understanding of what it means to follow him, right? He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. So he's taking the very thing that he's doing and laying down his life to bring life, and he's saying that's part of what your discipleship will look like. You need to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross daily and follow him. And he even says that. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. This is, the, this is now the call to um, belief and abide. That's why I say this is the turning point in John. Up to this point, he hasn't talked about what it means to actually be a disciple. He's alluded to it, but now he's making it really clear. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, my servant will be also. So, the very work that Christ is doing in the place of the eternal kingdom, guess what? We get to be a part of that. So, he's making a statement about if you're a citizen of the kingdom, you actually share in the life of the kingdom, in the benefit of the kingdom. We understand that as heaven. Where is God's throne? Where is the king? He's in heaven, right? So, if we are following him, if we are in Christ, we're going to be with him in heaven. We're going to have eternal life. And that's what he's saying. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The Father and the Son have life in themselves, and the Son gives it to whom he chooses. Guess what? He chooses to give it to us. And he's in, this is the invitation into eternal life. But it happens through following. It happens through belief and abide. To believe and abide in Christ. To remain in Him. Now he says, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard were saying that it had thundered, and others were saying an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. So, what, what's 
happening here? The clash of the kingdoms. The clash of the kingdoms and Jesus is in the crossroads. Right? So you got the two kingdoms smashing into each other. Right? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of the world thinks it's got the kingdom of God beat. The, the prince of that kingdom um, rebelled against God and spit in his face. Right? And said, I'm going to take everything that you love and I'm going to destroy it. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus said, I come to bring life and to bring it in the fall. Abundantly. Right? Clash of the kingdoms. And Jesus is right there. He's being smashed. But somebody had to be smashed. God knew that the only way that the kingdom of God could, could put down this rebellion was to actually come into contact with that kingdom. To truly overthrow it. Right? What does that overthrow look like? It looks like Jesus getting smashed as the kingdom of God comes on earth as it is in heaven. But Jesus knows that getting smashed, getting sacrificed for the lives of the people is not the end. He knows his Father. And he knows the purpose of his Father. And shares the love of his Father. And expresses the love of his Father for the people. Right? So he's willing to do this, but at the same time, he knows that this means crucifixion. He is in great anguish. So in the other Gospels, we read about the anguish of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here you read about it in this turning point. Jesus recognizes that, yeah, my hour has come. Before the week is out, I'm going to be nailed to a cross. And I'm going to be killed and laid in a tomb. He knows that. He's revealed it. He said, this is exactly what's going to happen. He knows that everybody who has stood behind him up to that point is going to turn their head away. That he's going to die alone. To the point where he cries out, Father, where are you? Right? So when Christ dies, he takes the full weight of death. When we die, I would suggest we don't die alone. This world would say, no, you die alone. That, in fact, you know, that's the theme of movies. Um, if you, uh, an interesting, weird movie, a cult movie, is called Donnie Darko. And it's about uh, a change in the timeline and how this one kid, is, in a sense, has to be a Christ and to put the, the world back on the correct timeline has to die. And he makes a statement. Everyone dies alone. Because that's the way the world sees it. They see that you are alone, it's dark, it's desperate, there is no remedy. That's where Christ took that fully on himself. But when we die, Christ is there with us. He died our death. We are baptized in him. So that means that we do not die alone. In that moment, the lowest moment of your life, when everything is lost, you're right there with him. And nothing is lost, and everything is gained. 
you give up your life in this world, you will gain a life in Him that is eternal. That's what is going on. And he knows that he has to take that on himself individually. This is grief. My, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. But for this purpose, I came. And that's it's the most courageous statement that I could ever read. Right? Because he fully knows what's going on. And he fully knows what it means. More than any other man has ever known it. And yet he chooses to do that. That's the hour for which he came. Yes. And so he then makes a statement. He says, Father, glorify your name. What's in a name? It isn't just the name Yahweh as we put in vowels and to the consonants and so that we can pronounce it. The, the meaning of that entity and yeah. that thing is about the, the person is um, recognized or um, identified by the name, right? So when I say Daniel, I'm talking about the person, but I know you as more than Daniel, right? The, the name Daniel. I know the person who I've shared my life with, right? This is the name of God. The Son has fully knows the Father. In fact, if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father, right? And he says, now, glorify your name. In other words, God, come in all of your presence. This is the power of heaven invoked, right? And a voice came out of heaven, and he says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. It seems like um, part of that is that Jesus' humbleness, you know, where if we were to take that into a, a non-crucifixion context of our own selves, like, you know, when if we're praying for stuff that we want, you know, perhaps we're praying for, like, guidance in life itself, you know, to pray for, for wisdom and for him to glorify his name through us. You know, be it, and that's basically asking for pain and for suffering, which is, would be good, right? According to Paul. But he glorifies the name that way. Right. So it's not that pain and suffering are necessarily good. Um, we understand that through pain and suffering, a greater glory can be revealed. Is that what you're indicating? Right. Yep. And, and, Christ knows that. He knows that by uh, dying for uh, the lives of the world, laying down his life, that, in fact, God is greatly glorified in that. How did they have to beat him so that? Pardon? Why did they have to give the little crown of thorns and beating him? You know, um, if there was an easier way, I'm sure God would have done it. This is... You know, I ask the question, is it necessary for Christ to die, the death that he died, for the forgiveness of your sins? You mean it's the a trick question. It is necessary because that's what happened. Was it necessary for him to die for the forgiveness of your sins? No. Right. 
we know that because there was a man that was brought to Jesus through the, the roof of the house. He was lowered down on a mat. And he said, and he said sons, your sins are forgiven. And they said, who is this that can forgive sins? He said, so that you'll know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man, take up your mat and walk. Right? So the man is healed to demonstrate that God could just say, your sins are forgiven. So when your sins are forgiven, that means that you're held harmless. But it doesn't remove the consequence of the sin. In other words, death is still going to occur. So when he said that to the man who was lowered down, he was not removing the consequence. Correct. In other words, the reason that the man was in that state was because of sin. And to say, okay, I hold you harmless of your sins, did not uh, remediate the cause. Doesn't mean like he specifically sinned a certain way and then was given that lameness. It just means that he was born into sin like us all, and maladies themselves exist because of sin, generally, right? Uh, I'm not sure that I mean, like there's sickness and there's and and all that because of sin in the world. Not that this guy who was lowered down specifically sinned and then was specifically made lame because of a specific sin that he did. So we understand that lameness and disease and death are all the result of sin. That it wasn't supposed to be this way from the beginning. We know that. That that corruption entered in when man sinned. We find that in other places in the Bible. So, um, what needs to be solved is not just for God to say, okay, I'm going to not look at that. That still doesn't save the man from death. It just means that God isn't going to uh, accuse him of that sin. In other words, he holds him harmless. But there's still death. Christ had to die to conquer death. And he also demonstrated that sins were forgiven. Just like he demonstrated with the man, he said, take up your mat and walk. He also demonstrated that not only was sin forgiven, but you have new life when he rose from the tomb on the third day. So it was necessary for him to die. But there are two things that were occurring. Forgiveness of sin. He said on the cross, he said, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they do. And what, he, what I would have liked to have heard him say also was forgive them father because they do that which they know not to do right? yeah. in other words we have sins of uh, not understanding but we also have sins of just pure rebellion spitting in the face of God and the fact that Christ died for those kinds of sins too is evidence that he also washed Judas's feet which we're going to read about in chapter 13 Judas had been revealed as the one who was already in his heart to betray Jesus. And yet he, he, Jesus still died for him. Right? So there are some that are going to die and uh, in their sin. And it's not that Christ didn't die for them. It's because they don't choose him. And that's what it's supposed to be. When you sent uh, the disciples out, Judas was armed. Did Judas right. also heal and do all this stuff? We can assume that we can assume that he did. So Judas is the classic example. His heart was Right. 
Yeah, but did he know he was going to do that at yep. the beginning? And, and did he want him? Christ, so God knows from before we were born all the days of our lives. Right? So that means he knows all those things I wouldn't tell anybody. I meant Judas. Judas didn't know. He knew Judas. From day one. Judas. Every day of his life. Did yeah. Judas know that he was going to do this is what you did. From day when he did, did Judas know? <laughs> From the beginning. No. Right. Um, probably not. I would say that we lie to ourselves. But he was pitching that money. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, the um, father of lies, you know, so we believe a lie, right? Um, the, the hard part is, is when you're believing a lie and the truth comes to you and it's so bright that you recognize, oh, I believed a lie. And if you still choose to believe the lie, then that's, that's a bad place to be because you're doing it with full knowledge. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and make that as true as I can. Now. Right, but I would say that probably when, when Judas started, he was he was believing a lie about himself that he was basically good, and, and that's what that's what it meant to be in God's presence. Is you're just basically good and everything's okay, you know. But what Jesus revealed is no, 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 no. It's not that at all. So that kind of got off the side here, but actually, it's not it's not too far off to the side. Because there's this whole thing about what he came for, and even though he's in anguish, the clash of the kingdom, that he's caught at the crossroads, um, and that he's going to lay down his life for his people, and yet in that he says, God, come in all your power. Glorify your name. And God says, no, it's glorified. And it will be glorified again. And then those that heard, heard it said, what? What's that? Is that thunder? But then Jesus said, no, this is for your sake, so that you would know that I know um, what's, what's going on. This is about the revelation of God, that you can make no mistake. Jesus is the Christ, Amen. the Son of God. Amen. And then he says, now judgment is upon this world. Mm. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Like right then, right now? Yeah. The king is... This event that he's walking into is the dethroning event. He dethrones the king of this world who, who ends uh, all by death. So when it says now is the judgment of this world, the now is the death, his death. Yep. That he's about to pass. Yep. And he's, he's talking about his death because he says, and if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Does that mean his ascension? Or he's talking about his crucifixion. Right. Uh, he's talking he about the event that not. overthrows the king of the world, which is he conquers death. Hmm. Satan has no power if he doesn't have death. Well, you realize that? How does the power of Satan feel like this? Satan can, can destroy your body in this world, which is corrupted, but he can't destroy your incorruptible body. He can't destroy your life in God. He can't destroy God. When he loses the power of death over people, people are truly free. He's releasing the captives. He's setting the captive free. 
That's why he says, judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. When he dies on the cross, the judgment of all men is made. The wages of sin is death. But he said, you come to bring death. I came to bring life. Yeah. So that's what's going on. That's why I say this is a turning point. This is the end of that public ministry. And I'm out of time. <laughs> you didn't laugh. We were. It's like there's a giggling. Uh, point. Okay. Need a bigger sign. So, uh, we almost made it through chapter 12. <laughs> through 33? Yeah. But, Wait, uh, next week you have to say we're not here. Oh, yes. Next week, <laughs> next week I won't be here. I'm not sure about the state of class yet because I still need to talk to Bob. But I won't be here teaching, so it may be canceled. So, um, the email blast. Yeah, there will be check the email blast that goes out. Um, they'll they'll tell you whether it's canceled or if somebody else will be sitting in, in my stead. We're going to go visit our daughter in California. Let's go ahead and, and close here in prayer. This is a good place to to end because basically the king is declaring victory. So Lord, we just thank you for opportunity to come to your word this morning uh, to wrestle through the nuance it's just so chock full of, of incredible truth that speaks to us in so many areas of our lives it is truly a light that illumines Lord that there isn't any uh, area or corner that's not uh, brought to light through your revelation and Lord if we choose to remain in the darkness but that's us, not you. It's not because uh, you have not reached out to us and given us your word and your revelation. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that you would just touch our hearts as we study through this, that uh, your Holy Spirit would speak to us personally where we stand. Um, we know the events of our lives that we won't tell anybody else, and you do too. And Lord, we ask that your light come into those dark places and that you draw us to you and that you help us understand your forgiveness that you help us understand your life, and that you help us to be disciples and following you to bring forgiveness and life to the world. Lord, both your forgiveness, your life, as well as um, doing as you did, forgiving those who trespass against us. Lord, we thank you for all of these things that you've done for us. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for your protection. We thank you for your loving, kind service to us, Lord, that you would wash our feet, as we're going to read next, um, that you would lay down your life for us. Lord, we thank you for all of this. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray.